0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Love. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Thanks very much. Last time we had introduced Augustine, introduced the Confessions, and began to work our way through the Confessions, trying to... Learn lessons, especially about conversion, about Christian discipleship, uh, that we can learn from Augustine in the Confessions. And uh, in a more sort of broad and holistic way, sort of pick up everything that we can from our exposure to this classic Christian book. We had gotten into book four, or right at the end of uh, book three, and then now we're going to go into book four. So we're going to take a brief kind of look through the rest of the confessions, faster in some places, slower in others, uh, to get some idea about what's there, uh, the different things Augustine has to say to us, the way in which he wants to say those things to us. And we also want to get to the point where we can step back from the text a little bit and focus on some of these bullet points you see, for example, on this handout uh, with the title on the top, the rest, a restless heart, the confessions of Augustine. We want to think about some of these points here uh, in a broader way, not just as we walk through different uh, pieces of Augustine's composition. Okay, so that's kind of our our aim tonight, um, and we'll uh, do as best we can, do as much justice as we can uh, to this monumental book in in such a short time. So. In book three, uh, Augustine had moved to Carthage and uh, come alive to the quest for truth. He had looked to the Bible, but he couldn't find truth in the Bible because the simplicity of the words, uh, the simplicity of the expression uh, turned him off. He was too proud to find the truth in such a humble text, Uh, so he turned to Manichaeanism, which was suave and cool and for the elite, Uh, Christianity for the elite. Uh, In book four, we hear more about um, his journey and the way in which his adolescent lust sort of settles into uh, keeping a mistress, uh, who he did for many years. Uh, One of the interesting things we're going to see maybe in book four, a kind of oblique, uh, sort of sideways look at Augustine, he tells us that he has this mistress who he keeps, and then later on we get the story of uh, his friend who died and all the impact that had on Augustine. Uh, we don't ever learn their names. He doesn't give them to us. And there may be a lot of reasons for that. Um, in part, he might have been trying to protect this woman who he had lived with for years and then left, and, and he had moved on to another life, and he didn't want to sort of drag her into his story unnecessarily, perhaps. That's one possible um, reason for his doing that, another way to look at it too, and in combination with the fact that we don 't we don 't know the name of the friend whose death struck him so is that Augustine was so focused on himself he wasn 't transparent to other people he wasn 't interested in other people exactly it was his relationship with his mistress and his relationship with this friend was focused on him, and this is a way for him to kind of illustrate for us the fact that he didn't have everything all together. And in addition to a change of mind, he also needed a change of heart. He needed to stop focusing on himself and start focusing on others uh, by way of love and, and true love. So, uh, Augustine is, is giving us this picture almost maybe without us realizing it um, and sort of shaking his fist. You know, for a large part of this book, he's, he's so angry. Uh, this person who died you know didn't he know it would hurt him so, hurt Augustine so much, and he cried and he cried, and it was all this horrible thing and it's the other man died after all, <laughs> crying out loud <laughs> augustine's just upset about it, you know, but he's so so fixated on that um, by the end of book four, he begins to to recognize a kind of intellectual pride he he had a, a puffed up opinion of himself of his his intellectual ability uh. And he began to see this, this could be an obstacle to, to his coming to truth. Right? Moving quickly, that, that kind of leads us into book five. And uh, book five begins with another prayer. Um, again, Augustine sort of calling God into these moments of conversion and setting up the kind of um, main event of Augustine's conversion, which we're going to find in book seven, eight, nine, ten. That, that set of four books is kind of the, the main locus of his changing mind, heart, um, community and sacrament and profession. Those, those things um, change from the world and focus on Augustine to focus on God in the Catholic Church and all those things in those those central books. So in book five, um, he continues his, his uh, career. He moves from Carthage to Rome, coming closer to the seat of authority. That That's a Again, a kind of subtle way of saying that his career was going very well for him. Um, Also, he tells us in Book 5 that he began to be dissatisfied with Manichaeanism. There was a promise that there would be answers to all his questions. We know Augustine is such a great and curious questioner. Um, And he kept asking, and the Manichees didn't have answers for him. Uh, And and that really frustrated him. Um, He was told um, that there's Um, that he should wait and talk to Faustus, talk to Faustus, Faustus will answer all your questions, a Manichae bishop, uh, and kind of a a famous authority in in their community. And so he waited and he waited and finally he talked to Faustus and and in a way his his encounter with Faustus sort of dropped the scales from his eyes about Manichaeanism because he listened to Faustus and realized that the words were beautiful, that the presentation was beautiful, but there was no substance. There were no answers from Faustus, just a prettier way of saying he didn't really know the truth about good and evil uh, and salvation. So um, Augustine turns aside from Manichaeanism, that's not going to work for him. Um, As cool as it is, as as sort of upper crust as it is, it's not going to give him the answers he wants, and he's more interested in truth than he is in... Uh, social status and, uh, and, and the appearance of excellence. Right? Uh, and, and it's quite a thing for a, for a teacher of rhetoric to, to come to that point. Right? His, his whole profession is based on giving people the tools to say whatever they want to say or say nothing at all. Um, and he, he understands that even though that's, that's his job, that's not the thing that's going to make him whole as a human being. He, he needs the truth. Uh, not just a pretty way to say things and a convincing way to say things. So um, he tells us as well that he he moves on to Milan. uh, And we had mentioned last time that meant coming even closer to the seat of authority. uh, The Roman emperor had moved to Milan in the late 4th century to deal with the barbarian invasions. Uh, And so his coming to Milan, again, is his sort of moving into the upper echelon of his profession as a rhetorician, teaching people how to speak persuasively and convincingly. Uh, And in Milan he talks about encountering Catholicism again in a new way and he's very impressed with the Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose. That leads us right into book six Um, and in addition to Ambrose who is a great orator, um, a profound thinker in his own right, um, someone who had captured the wisdom of Cicero and translated that into a Christian context. Cicero had talked about virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And Ambrose uh, took that thought of Cicero and translated that into a Christian context. Um, so Ambrose is a great uh, preacher and teacher and intellectual. Uh, and he leads Augustine, he, he shows Augustine the path uh, to. To truth, to happiness, and salvation, uh, in the Catholic Church. So, in addition to Augustine's, or sorry, to Ambrose's example for Augustine, Am, uh, Augustine starts out Book Six talking about his mother Monica. All right? Monica is not a great intellectual, but she offers Augustine another example of faith, uh, of simple faith that um, informs the people of Milan on the one hand. Uh, she brings certain customs and, uh, you know, ideas and uh, to Milan that are novel to them. They didn't, they didn't do some of the things that she did, uh, but they found her practices sort of enriching uh, and, and wonderful. Uh, we can also see here that, that Monica is traveling with her son. Right? She's left North Africa and gone with him uh, all the way from Rome up to Milan as well. Um, and all of this sort of leads to Augustine re-examining Catholic doctrine and um, another moment when, his, when kind of the scales fall from his eyes as he talks about this sort of encounter with a beggar. Uh, this man who is so fixated on drink that he'll do anything and, and his fixation has destroyed him, has made him a beggar, made him homeless. Uh, and Augustine realizes that by analogy He's that beggar, or maybe worse off than that beggar. Augustine is the one who's so fixated on lust that he can't see anything else, and it's, it's ruining his life. Uh, not at the externals, right? He's, he's rising up in professional uh, excellence. Everything seems to be going well, but interiorly, right, and that's Augustine's sort of story for us, the interior life, uh, and, and what it's like on the inside. And uh, Interiorly, he knows that lust is destroying him. Uh, And when he sees this alcoholic man, we would say, uh, it gives him an insight into himself and he realizes as as good as things look, he's got real problems and he needs help. What he does is tries to fix his moral problems on his own and and also with his mother's help too. Um, She tries to kind of get him fixed up and married, right? He's he's got this problem, you know, he's kept this mistress, and he's struggled with lust sort of all his adult life. So, well, Paul said in First Corinthians, it's better to marry than to burn, so let's get it married, and that'll solve the problems, right? And Augustine, you know, he's sort of, he's trying to, by his own power, kind of conquer his demon, so to speak, right? And he's trying to sort of make marriage work, and he, there's, you know, he puts his mistress away, but then he says you know, rather than kind of making him more faithful and less lustful, he found himself going to prostitutes sort of straight away, and that made him feel really horrible. You know, He's he sort of been faithful to this one woman for these years, and immediately all of that sort of evaporated uh, for him. So the end of book six is a kind of story of frustration. When he tried to change his, his life on his own, he found he couldn't do that. Uh, and that sets us up for what's going to happen, especially in Book 8. Uh, and we have a, a copy of the, the end of Book 8 where we have the dramatic moment of conversion for Augustine on a moral level, on the level of heart, uh, and the level of choice. Just to point out a couple other important pieces, a couple of other important themes that are in Book 6, uh, Augustine talks about Ambrose. Uh, and Ambrose reads in a way that he's not familiar with, which is, Ambrose reads silently. In Augustine's day, everyone read out loud. Right? And that was part of the sort of experience of reading, was to hear it, not just to see it, but to hear it. Uh, and Augustine's own compositions you, know, in, you know, are poetical and musical and, and take on a new life when you hear them read. Um, Ambrose read interiorly, and we could get a lot out of that, sort of seeing a kind of interior focus, right? Reading is not simply sort of for pleasure, sort of just for the ears and the eyes, but reading is for the heart. Reading should cut deeper. Augustine sort of is struck by this example. So the, the type of reading, the way of reading is one thing. And another thing he gets from Ambrose as well is Ambrose is able to read the Old Testament and see revelation, information about, let's say, the God of Jesus Christ, right? That is, Ambrose is able to read the Old and New Testament together. And Augustine had followed the Manichees for a dozen years who tried to read the Old and New Testament separately, against each other. And Augustine was dissatisfied with that reading because it didn't give him the answers that he wanted. Ambrose reads the Old Testament in a way where he finds Christ in the Old Testament, foreshadowed, prefigured, right? and in a way that harmonizes the Old and New Testaments. And that also is, is really attractive to Augustine. He begins to see the answers that he's looking for may be found in the Catholic Church, uh, where they, he couldn't find them through the Manichees. So that sets us up. We're into these, uh, as I said, kind of the core of the confessions. Um, On your handout A Restless Heart, the first point, number one, Christian discipleship comprises every aspect of the human person including life in these fields intellectual, moral, communal, sacramental, professional. Book seven is the story, is the moment when Augustine has the conversion of mind. His intellectual life is changed and he's convinced of the truth of the Catholic faith by the end of Book 7. Okay? And how does this happen? Augustine's had this sort of hang up where he couldn't read the Bible and get much out of it because it was too humble for him. He needed something fancier in order to sort of be acceptable to his sort of refined rhetorical taste. Well, he has this encounter, this experience where he reads uh, Neoplatonist books. Um, and his, so he reads a Neoplatonist, he finds some true things there, right? About the Logos, this sort of principle of unity and order and rationality that brings everything into harmony instead of chaos, right? So the, the Neoplatonists talk about uh, the One and the, the, the order of the One, which is beauty, and everything is sort of harmonized together by the One and, and through order. So he reads those things and then realizes that. The truth, which the Neoplatonists wrote about in a way that kind of appealed to Augustine, you know, a nice rhetorical style, the truth they found was also in the Bible. And so he says in book seven, I read in the Platonists, not these words, but these ideas. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he goes for these long quotations, especially out of John, about the word and the Logos and God's order, plan and design for the universe and how you know, he's made all things well. So, he reads the Platonists, he sees the truth there. He figures, he, he, he recognizes that the truth in the Platonists is also reflected in the Bible and that's the path that enables him to see that the Bible tells the truth because it said the same thing as a trustworthy source, the, the books of the Neoplatonists. By the end of book seven, he says, once he sort of was able to see the truth in the Bible, He kept reading, and what he found when he read the Bible was something the Neoplatonists couldn't tell him, and that's especially the incarnation and the passion of Christ. The idea that the Logos, the Word, would become flesh and dwell among us, that's not something that the pagan Neoplatonists could imagine. The idea that the omnipotent, omniscient one, would suffer and die for us, to save us, to bring us into relationship with Him. That is not something that philosophy can imagine. That is something that we only know because God told us, because God did it, He showed up. Uh, And He calls us to faith, to accept uh, Him and God as a truth-teller and accept these things which He has told us, which He loves us and wants to save us and died to save us. So, with that, Augustine sort of by way of the neoplatonist starts reading a lot more of paul and by the end of book 7 he's talking all about the things he's learning by reading paul and that he's convinced of the christian gospel in his head this is the right thing and then book 8 starts and he says but i still couldn't give up the the sin the lust that i had clung to for so long Right. He's, and he starts out praying, uh, not surprising in the confessions, it is a sort of elongated prayer. He starts out praying um, and thanking God for his gifts and um, talking about all the Christians he's meeting, and now we're in book four. It was anonymous mistress, anonymous friend. Now everyone has a name. Suddenly, all the people he meets have names. Simplicianus, Victorinus, Olypius, everybody has names. Anthony, Ambrose. Uh, and that's that's part of what's going on here. He's going to change his heart. He's going to change his will, change his choices. And he's also going to get a new set of friends, a new community, uh, which is life-giving instead of um, the, the group of friends, for example, in book two that encouraged him to steal the pears and throw them away and, and do bad things because they were bad. Right? Um, so book seven, his mind is changed. Book eight, he tells us all about how... He needed to change his heart still, uh, and he couldn't. Uh, there's a very famous passage, which I haven't given you, uh, but I'm going I'm to uh, share with you. It's um, Confessions, Book 8, Section 5. And um, in the first part of this passage, Augustine tells us that all these Christians he was meeting were telling him stories, telling him conversion stories about how this person and that person had changed their lives and come to God and found peace and happiness. Uh, And even rhetoricians had changed their lives and given up their teaching of rhetoric uh, in order to follow Christ. Uh, And Augustine was really excited about that. He wished that he could do that, he says. uh, And and he turns to God and he says these things, um, which I'll share with you now. Um, So Victorinus is a rhetorician who's converted to Christianity and Because of a law at that time, you couldn't be a Christian and a rhetorician, so he had to give up his profession to do that. So Augustine says, Victorinus had obeyed the law, preferring to give up his own school of words rather than desert your word, by which you make the lips of infants vocal with praise. In this he seemed to me not so much courageous as fortunate, because in this way he found the means of devoting himself entirely to you, to God. I longed to do the same, But I was held fast, not in fetters clamped on me by another, but by my own will, which had the strength of iron chains. The enemy held my will in his power, and from it he made a chain and shackled me. For my will was perverse, and lust had grown from it. And when I gave in to lust, habit was born. And when I did not resist the habit, it became a necessity. These were the links, which together formed what I have called my chain, and it held me fast in the duress of servitude. But the new will, which had come to life in me and made me wish to serve you freely and enjoy you, my God, who are our only certain joy, was not yet strong enough to overcome the old, hardened as it was by the passage of time. So these two wills within me, one old, one new, one the servant of the flesh, the other of the spirit, were in conflict, and between them they tore my soul apart. This is Augustine's experience of sin. His mind is changed. He knows the truth. He wants to follow it, but he's torn between his old lust and his new desire to serve God and be with him. And um, this is a kind of beautiful description, maybe, maybe painful description of what Paul is talking about when he says that sin is slavery. Sin binds us. Sin keeps us from being free. It narrows us. It, it focuses us on one thing or another. For Augustine, it was lust. We all have our own favorite sins. It limits our possibilities. It makes us only think of that thing and closes us off to everything else and most importantly, to God who is for us all things. God who is our only certain joy, uh, Augustine says. So this is the the state in which he finds himself in terms of his will, his choice, his desire. His mind's in the right place, but now we're, we're looking at the will. As we work through Book 8, the stories keep coming um, about the, the people who've converted uh, and about Paul and about Anthony and about uh, these, these various um, contemporary figures who, he, who he's meeting and, and their conversions as well. Um, and that brings us sort of down to the end of Book 8, which you have on your, your copied sheets. Um, now, it's lovely, and I, you know maybe I should just read the whole thing, but I, I think maybe I won't do that. But you've got it in front of you anyway. Augustine has talked about his, his struggle back and forth. Um, he's talked about how he longed to be free, but he couldn't be free. Uh, and finally, in section 12, uh, he's, he's come down to this point. Uh, he's, he's crying, he says. Like, um, he wanted to weep and cry to his heart's content, um, and he, he wanted to cry by himself. He moved away from Olympias, who was with him there. Right? He's not alone in this, and that's, that's an important point we're going to see a couple times here. Um, he was crying, and he was he was sort of torn apart inside himself, as he described before, Um, And then he comes to God, and this is after uh, footnote one in the middle of that copied page at the beginning of section 12. I had much to say to you, my God, not in these very words, but in this strain. Lord, will you never be content? Must we always taste your vengeance? Forget the long record of our sins. For I felt that I was still the captive of my sins, and in my misery I kept saying, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? He's at this crisis point and he's, he's, asking, he's asking himself and he's asking God, please free me. Please let me escape from this sin. And we have this famous scene uh, in Latin. Uh, he hears these words, tole lege, tole lege, take and read, take and read. And Augustine, in a sort of characteristic way, I think, he starts thinking about this it and like, sort of like, huh, I didn't, is there a game where kids say that? I've never heard of that game before. I wonder what that's all about. You know, he's sort of like musing about it and thinking about it, investigating, questioning. And then sort of like, you know, he gets hit over the head a little bit and he's sort of like, wait a second. God's talking to me, right? Um, Which in one way gives us a message sort of like God talks to people. He intervenes in their lives and he's active and uh, can engage us even in in ways where we might hear words out loud. That could happen, right? And, And the fact that Augustine tells us it happened to him is so influential for the church that we accept this kind of phenomenon uh, after Augustine, in large part because Augustine, this great and glorious mind and intellect and expositor of the Christian faith, said it happened to him. Right? And just like in an earlier book, he said, I didn't get much out of Aristotle. Yeah, we didn't read Aristotle for several hundred years after that because Augustine said he didn't get much out of it. So it's the power of Augustine there in the tradition. But Augustine hears the words, he, you know, and then he remembers... Anthony of the Desert story, how he heard the gospel and it changed his life, and immediately he followed God. So, so I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting, for when I stood up to move away, I had put down the book containing Paul's epistles. I seized it and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage in which my eyes fell, not in reveling in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend not, no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled." So Augustine, who longed for this freedom from his sin and his his habit and his necessity, got it by reading the scriptures. And this tells us something important, something profound, the scriptures which is the inspired, written Word of God. The Scriptures have power to change lives. The Scriptures have power to change our lives because God can speak to us through the Scriptures. This thing that happened to Augustine can happen to us because God wants to talk to us in the Scriptures. He wants to meet us there and lead us and guide us, give us not just information, but power through the Holy Spirit to live Christian lives. That's what it says, Catechism 103. The scripture is is the place where the Father wants to speak lovingly to his children. Augustine had that experience, and we can have that experience too, because God wants to save us just as much as he wanted to save Augustine. The Bible is a special book. It might have humble rhetoric, but it has the power of God, which can change lives, change hearts, not just minds, but hearts. Um, So Augustine has this experience, and then, he tells how Olypius, his friend, had a very similar experience. He told him about it, and Olypius went and read a passage, find room among you for a man of over-delicate conscience, and Olypius has a, a sort of parallel experience. So Augustine has this moral conversion, this deep interior thing, in, in fellowship with his friend, who was cleansed, who was converted from another sin. He was sort of addicted to gladiatorial games and the blood and everything. Right. Um, so these two friends, Come to God together, right? And where Augustine was alone as a sinner, he has friendship, true friendship, uh, in the Christian community. Book eight, um, and, and this scene in Book eight is pro- is probably the most famous passage of, out of the Confessions. It's called the Garden Conversion. Uh, it's uh, the the conversion in the garden in Milan, um, and. Most often cited, quoted. Sometimes people sort of read this and then stop. Just finish. Uh, don't read any more in the Confession. Sort of, it's all been done, said and done. It's not actually true, although it is very beautiful. Um, if we look on our handout, Augustine has had his mind changed. It has had his heart changed. Had a moral conversion. Uh, he's beginning to have a kind of communal conversion. He's coming into this new group of friends who's supporting him and, and helping him in his quest for truth and happiness. Um, But there's more to go, there's more of his life that he has yet to give up, and he narrates that in the next two books. So um, book nine, we're going to learn all kinds of interesting things like, surprise, surprise, Augustine had a son, right, who he hadn't talked about yet, but who gets named, right? Mom doesn't get named, the mistress doesn't get named, but his son does, with a kind of funny name, a deodatus, gift of God, right? so Augustine and his son Adeodatus and Olypius all get baptized by Ambrose in the church in Milan. Right? And if you look at the beginning of Book 9, he says, Oh, well, yes, I had this moral conversion, but it wasn't done yet. I had to be baptized. That had to happen, right? So it wasn't enough just to think the right thing and feel the right thing. He also needed to be incorporated into the body of Christ and step into the stream of grace that comes through the sacraments through baptism and through Eucharist especially. So, Augustine tells us about uh, a uh, We learned that he had a son, that he was great and wonderful, they got baptized together, and he was really bright and brilliant, and also he died, all in Book 9. Sort of, It's sort of flash in the pan, so to speak. Um, and helps us to see as well, Augustine is actually not so interested in a kind of tell-all autobiography. If he was, then we'd know all about that mistress we lived with for years and years, right? His goal here is to narrate conversion for us. To give us resources, to give us models, to give us encouragement that we should go through the same kind of process that he went through. Rather than sort of have hero worship for Augustine, we should realize that God is the source of our peace and our joy, and we can find him the way Augustine did if we will just give God our mind, our heart, our strength, everything. That's Augustine's message and that's, that's the Christian gospel uh, and that's uh, Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. and Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So also in book 9, there's a lot there. Here we have uh, a long recitation of the, the virtues and the work of Monica also her sin, too. You know, she was sort of a drunk, as he says, a wine swiller. Uh, She's called by a servant in her household and that kind of shakes her up. Um, The reason why uh, the church canonized Monica is largely because of of what Augustine wrote here about how great she was and she prayed and she was faithful and all these various things. Um, She and Augustine share a kind of um, exalted, almost sort of of out-of-body spiritual experience together uh, just before she dies. And that's in uh, section 10. Again, the fact that Augustine had an experience like this, a kind of deep contemplative experience that was almost sort of like they were seeing heaven, but they had sort of left earth, but not really. or something The fact that Augustine talked about that and sort of said, that's a great thing, helped to shape the tradition and and make room for that kind of experience and acceptance of that kind of experience in the tradition, uh, as we saw in other places as well. We also have the narration of Monica's death uh, in this book as well. Right? So his earthly family is sort of melting away and he's entering into this spiritual family of the church through the sacraments. Right? The, sort of the old man is melting away. Not that everything was bad, but it's sort of melting away and he's entering into the church and the community of the church. Um, we're also going to see Uh, He talks to Ambrose and says, well, before I get baptized, what should I do? He says, well, you know, you should read these passages out of Isaiah. Again, Old Testament, right? Uh, And Augustine tells us he tried and and it just didn't work for him. He, He really couldn't get much out of that. So that tells us there's something left to be converted. There's something left to be enlightened in his mind, right? That just because we finish with book seven doesn't mean that all the work is done or that we can sort of stop thinking about giving our minds to God. Um, and that's an important message for Augustine. It's also here in n- point number two. Christian discipleship is ongoing throughout human life. We see it in Augustine's story, and it's certainly true uh, for each and every one of us. Um, we don't finish mining the depths of the infinite God, right? and we never can. And that's what makes Christianity never boring, because we are trying to mine the depths of the infinite and we'll never get to the end of it. There will always be more. Right? It's not like a show on Netflix where you get to the end of the series and then there's no more shows and you have to find something else to fill your time or something like that. Um, <laughs> with God, because he's infinite, our infinite thirst for knowledge and for goodness finds the only thing that can truly satisfy it. Right? And that's a kind of explanation why our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Because we have infinite thirst, and the only thing that can satisfy that is infinite truth and infinite goodness. Where, where do we find that? Only God. Okay. So, um, Augustine is telling us this ongoing story. Book 10 uh, is, well, let's say end of book 9 sort of ends a kind of style for Augustine. When, he's, when he gets into book 10, he gets more sort of philosophical, uh, and many people stop reading the Confessions at the end of book 9. Truth is, uh, first half of Book 10 contains a long litany about how, as a bishop, right, and so there's another point. Augustine goes from being baptized as a Christian to being ordained a priest and then consecrated as a bishop. As a bishop, Augustine tells us at great length how he was still struggling with sexual sins, still struggling with lust and desire and all those kind of things, you know. Um, And that's, again, to show us his conversion of mind was still ongoing and also his moral conversion was still ongoing. He needed to work on those things, and just because he got baptized, just because he got ordained, didn't mean all his problems went away. And that's an important message about Christianity, in terms of like truth and advertising. We're not promising you're not going to have problems. Right? Jesus said, "In the world you have trouble, but don't fear, because I've overcome the world." Right? In Christ we have the victory. In Christ's death we have the victory. It's Sort of a costly victory, maybe in a certain way, because it costs us our lives too. And we see that in the gospel. He would save his life. Uh, we'll lose it, but he loses his life for my sake. If we give ourselves away, then we'll have salvation. Then we'll have happiness, peace, and uh, joy. So, um, Augustine tells us how he struggled still. Uh, and and here as well, Augustine the rhetorician, the the man who was prepared and succeeded uh, to the highest degree in speaking well and communicating well and effectively, took those gifts and used them to communicate the gospel, to convince people to come to the church, to come to Christ. Right? That's, that's the professional conversion that we have on the on the chart. Right? The professional conversion where Augustine gives his work over uh, to the service of the kingdom. Now, I don't think that means that we should all become priests and nuns and religious brothers and sisters and stuff. I I don't think that's what it means. Um, Augustine's giving of his work over to God is is a model and example for us so that whatever we do, I think, we should give that to God and let God use that. Uh, in his plan uh, and for the salvation of souls, for the people we know, the people at our jobs, the people in our communities, the people in the, the social groups that we're in. Uh, we should let ourselves, our work, our talents, our gifts be put at God's disposal so that he can use us uh, and we can be his instruments. So Augustine uh, had talked about these, these problems that he faced and, and these sins that he was struggling with and then in the middle uh, of that book uh, we get that famous prayer which we used at the end of our session last time from 1027. I have learned to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new. I have learned to love you late. Uh, that's him saying, you know, I struggled, but I, I tasted the Lord and found peace, and I wanted more. Right? So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a fruitless struggle. It wasn't a thankless struggle. In the midst of his struggle, he found God and he had peace. Uh, there was good reason for him to, to commit himself so fully Uh, to God and to the church. Um, Augustine um, also is doing something interesting here. Um, He's showing us that just because he became a Christian and a Catholic, just because he sort of slummed it, he he wasn't going for the Manichaean upper crust religion, just because he'd gone for the humble scripture didn't mean that he stopped thinking or that he had to give up thinking, right? So we have these sort of profound and maybe overwhelming reflections on memory from Augustine in book 10. And part of that is sort of to demonstrate that he didn't have to um, check his brain in order to be a Christian, which is important, especially for people who, um, like him, belonged to the upper crust of society, people who long for excellence. Uh, You don't have to give that up. In fact, I think Augustine's message here is you don't have to give anything up to serve God. In fact, you get so much more than you started with uh, if you'll just give everything away to God. It's paradoxical, uh, but it's true. Um, Augustine moves on, and here we'll go fairly quickly um, because with 11, especially book 11 and then 12 and 13, um, his uh, text gets more philosophical, more sort of technical, and he's continuing some of these things that we've, seen, uh, we've just been talking about. First he thinks about memory, how we have access to the past and how we think about time, and then he's gonna go into book 11 and talk about time itself. A- and all of that is sort of an interesting sort of philosophical discussion And it's also a kind of reflection on how Augustine, the author, can review his process of conversion. He's kind of giving us a kind of framework for how, even though he is not now feeling torn apart by sin, or even he is not now feeling like he should be a maniky, maybe, or something like that, he can still remember that. He can still go back to an earlier point in time, and how does that work? And he's going to engage that intellectually but also kind of provide an explanation for, for how we can do this, uh, especially in a time and place when this kind of interior autobiography, spiritual autobiography was sort of um, maybe maybe distasteful, maybe not just odd, but sort of distasteful. Who, who wants to get that far into someone else's interior life? Grind out loud? Uh, But Augustine is sort of taking us on the journey um, and, and trying to work through uh, important questions about grace and salvation. Um, In the end, in 12 and 13, uh, he turns again to the Bible, uh, to Genesis 1 and 2. And there's a number of different things going on here. Um, Augustine is showing us that the Old Testament and the creation of material things, which for the Manichees is the most horrible thing that ever happened. In fact, Augustine, the Catholic Christian bishop, can read those texts and find not just sort of gross matter, but spiritual insight. He can find a spiritual sense of those passages which, tell, which connect those passages to the actions of Christ uh, and the love of God and his plan of salvation, which is completed in Christ and the church. Right? So he's showing us how wrong the Manichaeans were right? as a kind of refutation of his former belief and people who would want to cling to that in such a way that if you want sort of the most sophisticated, upper-brow, high-crust thinking, you don't have to be a man You should be a Catholic. We can do it better than they do, right? better than Faustus did. He didn't have any substance. Here's some substance. Right? He's doing that. And also, he's just been reflecting on memory and time, And what does he do? He goes back to the beginning of time and starts to read it in light of God's wisdom, God's truth. Okay. Again, in Book 3, he couldn't find truth in the Scripture. He struggled with the Scripture in Book 6 and Book 9. By 12 and 13, he's beginning to be able to read the Scripture and read the Old Testament and find good things in it. And, And in that way, it's a sort of hopeful message. Even though he worked on it for a long time and it was hard for him, slowly, step by step, over time, it began to make sense to him. He began to get fruit out of that work and that labor. uh, And that's a kind of encouragement to us as well. Um, I want to turn to uh, the closing pages uh, of the Confessions, um, this sort of prayer. Um, Augustine had been reflecting on creation in the days of creation. Uh, And here he uh, reflects on the Sabbath rest, uh, the final seventh day of creation in the first creation account. He says, and you have this on your, your copied sheets. O Lord God, grant us peace, for all that we have is your gift. Grant us the peace of repose, the peace of the Sabbath, the peace which has no evening. For this worldly order and all its beauty will pass away. All these things that are very good will come to an end when the limit of their existence is reached. They have been allotted their morning and their evening. But the seventh day is without evening, and the sun shall not set upon it. For you have sanctified it and willed it should last forever. Although your eternal repose was unbroken by the act of creation, nevertheless, after all your works were done and you had seen that they were very good, you rested on the seventh day. And in your book, we read this as a uh, presage that when our work in this life is done, we too shall rest in the Sabbath of eternal life. Though our works are very good only because you have given us the grace to perform them. In that eternal Sabbath, you will rest in us just as now you work in us. The rest that we shall enjoy will be yours just as the work that we now do is your work done through us. But you, O Lord, are eternally at work and eternally at rest. It is not in time that you see or in time that you move or in time that you rest. Yet you make what you see in time. You make time itself and the repose which comes when time ceases. We see the things which you have made because they exist. But they they only exist because you see them. Outside ourselves, we see that they exist, and in our inner selves, we see that they are good. But when you saw that it was right that they should be made in the same act you saw them made, it was only after a lapse of time that we were impelled to do good. That is, after our hearts had received the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Before then, our impulse was to do wrong because we had deserted you. But you, who are the one God, the good God, have never ceased to do good. By the gift of your grace, some of the works that we do are good, but they are not everlasting after them we hope that we shall find rest when you admit us to the great holiness of your presence but you are goodness itself and need no good besides yourself you are forever at rest because you are your own repose what man can teach another man to understand this truth what angel can teach it to an angel what angel can teach it to a man we must ask it of you seek it in you we must knock at your door only then shall we receive what we ask and find what we seek. Only then will the door be opened to us. So Augustine's confessions end in a prayer, which is at the same time an exhortation to the reader, an invitation to the reader. You want peace? You want happiness? Seek it in God. It's the only place you'll find it. Uh, And Augustine says on the first page, We only find happiness in God. We only find peace in God. Uh, In the middle, uh, in 1027, that famous prayer, he says that he tasted God and he longed for more. He burned for more of God's peace. And at the end, he says, more or less, he's found it. He's found the source of happiness. Uh, And it it is only in God. Uh, We have a little bit of time now to reflect more and in different ways and think about how what Augustine has told us in the confessions might inform us, might show us um, the way to truth and happiness. Uh, I will not stand in front of you and say that I think I'm as smart as Augustine is. (laughs) That's not wise. Um, And not true. (laughs) So we're different than him. Uh, We don't live at the same time as him, uh, not nearly. Um, And many things sort of make his story not our story, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn from his story. And if we take that kind of broader view, then we can think and, and understand that Augustine experienced pride as a kind of obstacle. His own certainty of his excellence his own uh, sort of puffed up opinion of himself and his own sort of delicate taste that couldn't find truth if the words weren't said in the right way was an obstacle for him. Right? Pride is an obstacle for us too and just like for Augustine the path to salvation is through humility, is through humbling ourselves and, and in a sense the beautiful, wonderful thing that we have in Christ is that we don't have to do anything He didn't do. He was humble. He humbled Himself, taking the form of a slave, said, Paul says in Philippians 2, and accepting death, death on a cross, so that His name would be exalted, so that there would be a new creation, so that uh, all heaven and earth and below the earth would proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, so that we could be saved, so that the whole world could be brought back into harmony after sin so that Christ could overcome the destruction that Adam and Eve wrought when they rejected God's plan and chose to be gods for themselves. When Augustine tells us we have to be humble, in a certain way he's just telling us we have to imitate Christ. And we know that. Um, Augustine tells us, and we see it there at the end, he's talking about the good things that we do, and God's role in that. And we can think back to some of these episodes we've looked at, too. For example, in uh, in the garden in book 8. Augustine shows us this drama where God is inviting and God is leading, and we need to respond. And God tells Augustine, take and read, take and read. And then he waits for him to go and pick up the book and read it, instead of thinking about why he's hearing that and what it means and who's playing that game and why they play it. So, you know, you can see God sort of like, and now you got it. <laughs> you know, it was pretty simple, but, you know, God waited for him. God waited for Augustine to choose uh, and then rewarded that choice uh, with the grace to be free, from his lust. So there's a kind of interplay between God's initiative and our response and God's reward. And it goes back and forth and back and forth because Augustine is telling us, I think, God is inviting us into a relationship with him. This is not a do-it-yourself project. This is not a self-help project, Christianity. This is a cooperative relationship in which God is active always in big moments and small moments, always present, always speaking, always guiding and leading, always giving grace and asking for our response, asking for our commitment, asking for all of us. uh, And that if we will only give what we can give, then God will give what He can give, peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment. And so we have this we say sort of like characteristically Catholic presentation, Catholic sort of vision of what Christian life is all about. God calling us and leading us, giving us gifts and tools, and asking for our response, waiting for our response, and then rewarding that uh, by being faithful uh, and more generous than we can imagine. if we're looking here uh, at the the handout as well, you know, I'm I'm sort of working through these these points um, on the page. We should also think about what education is and what it should be, um, and just like Augustine's parents tried to give him a good start, a good preparation for happiness, but it wasn't quite the right thing to go to the best schools and get the best job, we should also think about what that means for us and what kind of formation we seek for ourselves and we offer for those we love and those in our care. Um, And Augustine, again, is going to come and tell us about humility and he's going to tell us about the cooperation of reason with faith, that they don't have to be opposed and, in fact, reason is enriched uh, when it's informed by faith, when it's guided by faith. Um, and there's a kind of message about the wholeness of human life uh, and the way in which God wants to engage us in a total way not just one part not just one way but everything And, and if we just trust him it will turn out beautifully Augustine tells us about Christianity by telling us his story and and it's engaging and entrancing for people, and people who aren't Christian, maybe even, uh, because he's just telling his story, right? And I think there's a model for us there, that we can, in our own way, in our own time, and the opportunities we're given, we can tell people about the the truth that we've found, and the happiness that we've found, that leads us out, you know, in storms, and good weather to hear this young, (laughs) bald man talk about the confessions and stuff, right? We've found something that that draws us to the church, that draws us to the Lord, Uh, and one way to invite people into the rest, the peace that we've found, is to tell our story. And that can be a kind of effective, entrancing way uh, to communicate and to share the gospel. Um, He gives us a great example, and, and we can learn from that example and try to apply that. Something else Augustine does, I would mentioned it last time, I I hadn't mentioned it yet today. Augustine engages his culture. He talks about the Aeneid, his personal journey and his travels, follow the travels of Aeneas, which was the familiar story, the paradigm of Roman life. And, And he tries to tell his Roman audience the true epic, the true glorious quest is for, not the founding of Rome, which, by the way, is falling apart all around us, right? Um, But for heaven, right? And and this is gonna connect to something else that Augustine wrote later, City of God, talking about the city of man and the city of God, and where our true treasures. Well, it's in God, it's in heaven, right? Um, But Augustine communicates to his audience in and through their culture and tries to tell them the truth of the gospel in and through their culture. So the Aeneid is not our cultural book that everybody reads and knows by heart. We have our own cultural elements and tools and, and expressions and I think if we follow the example of Augustine then we're going to engage our culture in our time in a way parallel to him and we're going to present Christ and the gospel and the joy and, and the peace and, and the excitement that it is to follow Christ, and to be in relationship with him, and to receive from him more than we can ever possibly imagine, uh, in foretaste now, uh, and in fruition, perfection in heaven. So, that brings us about to the end of our time. Um, I'll say just a quick prayer, um, and then we'll have our break, I believe, and, and go from there. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for all your gifts. We thank you for the gift of Augustine, his thought, his work, uh, his composition, the confessions. We ask you to imbue us with your love, with your grace, with your heavenly light. We ask you to help us learn from the example of Augustine, from the encounter with Augustine. We ask you to transform us, to help us give ourselves totally to you, and to find you peace, joy, happiness, truth, goodness, and every good and perfect gift in you, our Father, who loves us beyond imagining. And we ask that all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. In book uh, 11, It mentions God's eternity allows for predestination to grace. Now, the Calvinists believe in predestination. What what is um, Augustine referring to here by predestination? Sure. Um, Calvinist predestination is viewed, perhaps, as a determining beforehand what will happen to people. So sort of God makes a decision and then it happens later or something like that, or God sees it at one point in time and then later on it happens, right? What Augustine is getting at, and, and this, is, this is the Catholic perspective on this, you know, because um, Paul, has, Paul says you know, those who are predestined are justified, and if you're justified, you're sanctified. If you're sanctified, you're glorified. Paul says that in Romans, all right, so, we, we accept that Romans is an authoritative scriptural text. The way we understand it is God being outside of time, that's what eternity means, outside of time. For God, our being conceived, being born, first communion, marriage, death, eternal destiny, is, is not at different points in time, it's all at the same time. So, God sees now where I will be forever because he's not limited by time. He doesn't have to take existence one moment at a time. He can see the whole thing at once. So him knowing it is not the same as him forcing me to do one thing or another at a later point in time, right? It's a tricky concept, especially because God is the only thing which is outside of time All created things have some kind of sequence in their lives. Even angels have a sequence between creation and their their choice and their destiny. So we say God sees everything at one time, and him seeing that where we end up now doesn't mean that we don't have some role to play in terms of our cooperation with God or lack thereof um, in determining where we end up.
0: Actually, I do have a question for you, Dr. Love. Can you just reiterate something you said? I think it was about book 7 or book 8 and that you said that up until that point, Augustine had not really used names in referring to his colleagues and then after that he I just I'd never heard that before. Can you just remind me what you were saying? And
1: Yeah. In book 8 of the Confessions when he starts to talk about changing his choices. Um all of a sudden, we get names of everyone who's in the story, right? So if, if you would allow me, he starts off in section two. Victorinus was an old man of great learning. He tells all about Victorinus and his story. And then Simplicianus is telling me about Victorinus. Uh, and then, um, again, you know, sort of them telling us what's going on and, and a kind of narration of the scene, and they're their chanting for Victorinus and everything else. Um, and then later on, he's going to come and talk about uh, Anthony of the Desert, St. Anthony of the Desert. Um, and if you're, if you're reading Book 8, you, it kind of strikes you sort of like, we're talking a lot about these people and, and sort of we know them. And then if you look back, we have, we have no names of the schoolmates in Book 1. We have no names of the friends in Book 2. We have no name for the mistress. We have no name for the friend who dies in Book 4. We have no name for the beggar. We, he, just, he doesn't name anybody until he kind of comes to this point of giving his heart to God. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's enveloped in this community of people who are going through conversion like he is, who are encountering God in the Scripture like he is, who are entranced by Paul and, and kind of paralleling Paul's experience, being knocked off their horses like he is. And he's just not alone anymore.
0: Um, I also think his relationship with Bishop Ambrose was very um, important in his conversion because he was, I think, the first man that he could meet that he felt was uh, intellectually his peer, who he would always have an answer for. And actually, I think uh, Augustine would leave the his, the, uh, Bishop Ambrose home scratching his head yeah. instead of pe- putting people on the, uh, you know, yeah. out there.
1: I think you're right about that, and something I didn't, I didn't bring up, um, but which is really fascinating. Um, Augustine goes to Milan, and then he hears that Ambrose is a great rhetorician, uh, and, and uh, in fact, Ambrose wasn't a Christian when, when he was... Uh, elected bishop of Milan, which is an interesting story in itself, but uh, they thought, well, he'll be great. You know, he's not a Christian, but, you know, never mind, you know. (laughs) We'll take care of that, which they did and everything else. But so Augustine, in book six, narrates that he goes to Milan and he goes to hear Ambrose preach, right? Where are you going to hear this bishop exercise rhetoric? By preaching. And he said, I went just to pick up tips, kind of professional tips as a rhetorician, uh, but he found that he couldn't separate the presentation, the form from the content, that Ambrose's rhetoric was so good that he couldn't help but hear the gospel through the, the preaching, through the rhetoric that, that Ambrose used. Uh, so Augustine, Augustine wanted only one and not the other, but Ambrose was so good that he, he couldn't do that to him. He couldn't use him for his professional purposes. Uh, so Ambrose is an excellent rhetorician. Um, And and influences Augustine in many ways certainly
0: We have a question coming in from online and by the way for any of our online viewers We do have the notes and the handouts from tonight and from last week posted online So you can find them at our website for the event page Um, And the question is from Tom McNew in Texas who's a good friend of the Institute And he asks how according to Augustine is it possible that God is changeless and eternal But his creation is constantly changing over time
1: Sure. Augustine talks about creation and the way in which God calls things into being, as um, explained in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, And God isn't different before, during, and after creation. God is always truth and goodness and love, God is always communion of persons. God is always sort of giving himself away. In the Trinity, the Father gives himself away, and that, that, that's how the Son can be God, because the Father gives everything, including divinity, to him, uh, for example. So God is this sort of dynamic life, dynamic Trinitarian life, and freely chooses to make other things, which have some reflection in and some participation in God's ongoing life. It's, it's, a, it's not a full participation because um, if you don't have it of yourself, you, you don't have it to the same degree. You, know, you can't make another god, that, that you can't make a god, and that's, that's not possible. If you're going to be god, you have to be not made. Um, so this dynamic thing is happening, God, and then his goodness overflows and um lets other things participate in that in various ways uh and all kind of as a reflection of the, the dynamic life that God is and that God has. So I I hope that helps. Thanks for your question. Uh, hi Dr. Love. So uh on your uh, notes and your uh question number or point number one, uh it looks to me like there's a progression there. Is that was that intentional like you know intellectual comes before moral and then sacramental is what enables us and then at the end professional I assume is a vocation. Uh, did, did I miss that in the talk? I, you might have said it, I just wasn't listening. Oh, that's fine, thank you. Um, for Augustine if we pay attention to the way he narrates his journey, I think we can see there's sort of interlocking pieces so maybe in book three he begins to have a kind of intellectual conversion, and then he tries to have a moral conversion, but that doesn't really work. And then he gets sort of more intellectual conversion, and that helps him with moral conversion. And so there's a kind of stopping and starting with these different aspects uh, for Augustine. And I think the, the the takeaway point is that you need them all. Uh, you can't have just one or the other. And and not having one or the other can sort of prevent you from proceeding in your intellectual conversion, your thinking in your life of the mind, or your willing and choosing in uh, your, your life of virtue or vice or something like that. Um, for him in that main series, intellect, moral, and moral with communal, right? With all the names and the stories come and all the, the community around him, right? Moral and communal kind of come together. Uh, And then communal continues with the sacramental, and then the professional kind of comes last for him as he stops teaching rhetoric, and then eventually uses his rhetorical skill to preach and teach as a bishop. So there is a kind of pattern at the end for him, but we should consider it as you need all the pieces. If you don't have all the pieces, it won't quite work right. Thank
0: Thank you, Dr. Love. Pray for us.